Support for the Zest comes from People's Gas, delivering clean, efficient, and affordable natural gas for cooking at home with precise temperature control. More at floridasenergy.com. The reality is that culinary school isn't for everyone. You know, if I could look back, I would have liked to find someone to mentor me where I could have saved that $35,000, that I spent in culinary school. I'm Delia Colon, and this is The Zest. Citrus, seafood, Spanish flavor, and Southern charm. The Zest celebrates cuisine and community in the Sunshine State. Today, we bring you a conversation with history-making chef and St. Petersburg native, Eduardo Jordan. You won't want to miss this. In 2018, Eduardo Jordan took home two James Beard Awards, including Best New Restaurant for his Seattle eatery, June Baby. He was the first African-American ever to win in that category. And before Eduardo was a history-making chef, the St. Petersburg native was a member of Boca Ciega High's Class of 98. He studied at Le Cordon Bleu in Orlando and got his start at Mison Place Restaurant in Tampa before he moved out west. But Eduardo still has strong ties to Florida, including a virtual appearance at the Tampa Bay Collard Green Festival on Saturday, May 15th. This year's festival will be a hybrid event of live and online experiences. Eduardo chatted with me from his new hometown of Seattle. Tell me about growing up in St. Pete. And first of all, congratulations on all your success. We're so proud of you. We'll claim you forever. (laughs) As you should. (laughs) Yes, absolutely, you know. But what was it about growing up in St. Pete that had a lasting influence, do you think, on your career and the way you cook now? I mean, one, St. Pete is like my foundation for cooking. Um, Growing up with my mom and my grandmother cooking in their kitchens um, at home. Um, Just learning to trade, you know, learning hospitality, learning learning about friends and family and how to feed people and how much they should be fed, et cetera, et cetera. You know, just like the whole hospitality of like a Southern grandmother kind of feel welcoming everyone into the home. So like, that's my foundation, you know, just growing up in St. Pete taught me about like the hustle, you know, always on the grind, always trying to make something out of nothing. We didn't come from much. We had a lot of struggles in our family. Um, And I just instilled that continually going to get it. Don't quit kind of attitude that I, you know, put forth in my career also. Yeah, you really do. Like, do you sleep at all? <laughs> I, I learned that I need minimal sleep. And, you know, that's also part of the hustles. Like, you know, I was extremely busy in um, middle school and high school. I played a lot of sports. I was in a lot of organizations and part of all these committees. And I realized that, like, one, that kept me out of trouble because, you know, trouble was like looming on, you know, every corner. Um, and every time I stepped outside of the door and, um, you know, staying busy just kind of helped my creativity and helped me put good energy towards things that I enjoyed. So I continue doing the same thing now. So it's just like putting good energy towards things that I love. That's going to make me better. That's going to be a foundation for myself and my family. And yeah, just that's instilled in me now. Okay. You mentioned your Southern grandmother. My grandmother um, was from Philadelphia and she was the type who would take like a bucket of church's chicken and put it in her own casserole dish and try to pass it off. <laughs> so I know, right? So educate me. What is something that you learned from your Southern grandmother that translates into the food you make today? So no, my grandmother didn't cheat that way. She, I mean, she was literally soaking her chicken in buttermilk and throwing it in that paper bag. And, 
you know, shaking it and throwing it into that cast iron of that recycled oil that's probably been there probably for six months or longer. Fry some catfish in there, fry some chicken fried steak, you know, fried some something else in there, but that oil has some character. My my grandmother, you know, we didn't have a lot of money, like I said before. And so, like, you know, being able to turn, like, some offcuts into something edible, you know, livers, pork liver, chicken livers, neck bones, things of that nature, pig feet. Um, and making something that we actually enjoy eating was kind of amazing when you think back on it. It's so easy to eat good these days for most people with, you know, prime items, prime cuts, fancy pieces and all of that stuff. But you think about Southerners who, you know, made something out of nothing and, and fed the family and fed like, you know, more than the family, fed the neighborhood half the time. You know, that's something magical. That's a, a spirit that we don't get to embrace anymore because like all our food is like for the good and for the bad. Like all our food is like farmer driven and, you know, we get these prime cuts and like these are specially grown cows from, you know, Japan. It's just like, you know, <laughs> we we didn't eat that way. That's the truth. And, you know, it's a magical touch to have a Southerner or someone with that history be able to turn something that you think will be slightly inedible into something that's like pretty magical. It is. And that makes me think of just historically what Black people were given to eat and what they turned it into. So I got to ask you about your sweatshirt. You're wearing a blue hoodie that says chitlins on <laughs> oh, yeah, it. You got to focus in on that. <laughs> and that is your, wait, let's take a picture. Let's take a screenshot for the, for the people. Okay. We're going to take a picture of that. Okay. So it's a blue hoodie with white lettering that says chitlins state of mind. And this is your yeah. own, this is this your is own creation. This is yeah, your brand. Totally. So what is, what's the meaning behind it? Well, I mean, chitlins is one of those kind of iconic dishes in the South. A lot of people eating it and had to eat it. Some people were forced to eat it. You know, a, a lot of people in my family also had the opportunity to dodge it or to enjoy it. A lot of like my cousins, they don't enjoy it because like they had to sit in the house with grandma cooking it all the time. I also had to do it the same thing. But I, I actually enjoyed chitlins. And I remember, um, and I think it was like fifth grade year, Pasadena Elementary School in St. Pete. We were doing like a show and tell or something and, you know, in the courtyard telling the story of what I had for dinner. And this kid pretty much like ridiculed me about how I ate that nasty food. And so, you know, it resonated with me. It stuck with me. It, it stung. I actually stopped talking about like what I ate and how we ate as a culture because I, I realized then that, quote unquote, my food was inferior and I don't eat like normal people or at least, the, you know, the majority of the people that was at that school. And so. I just like really stepped back into like embracing my food and it didn't click in till late, later on in my culinary journey after going to culinary school, after cooking in some great kitchens that I need not to be shameful of the foods that I grew up on. Um, they tell a beautiful story. They tell a horrible story also at the same time. And Chitlins represents that story. It represents the struggle. It represents turning something turning nothing into something, turning something into more. It resonates uh, the fact of resilience, um, perseverance, you know, all of those struggles that represent chitlins because this is what was forced upon, upon the slaves or, or the enslaved to nourish their bodies at that time, to actually, you know, work in the fields to feed other folks, um, to make other folks millions of dollars. You know, we were forced to eat chitlins. And so um, it's not something that we should be bashful about. It's something that we should embrace. You know, it's something that we should talk about our history and not necessarily celebrate it, but embrace it. Like, this is part of us. Like, it is. So let's turn something into nothing moving forward. And it's not just now. It's not just about, like, the ingredient, the chillings itself. It's just like a state of mind now. It's like, 
we know how to make something out of nothing. Our perseverance, our resilience, uh, our bounce back is like, you know, greater than, than most cultures. And so like, let's run with that. And so like anyone should be able to wear this shirt and be like, I got that state of mind that I can make it, I can do this. Well, when you put it that way, I might have to get me one of those sweatshirts. And you should. I don't know. I don't know <laughs> when I'm going to wear it in Florida because it's hot. But <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 that one week in, in December. <laughs> Does it come in a tank top? <laughs> we're, we're working on that. But you're going to okay. always roll it up. You know, Perfect. I'll just cut the it's sleeves off. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So speaking of Florida, you are a USF bull. No, for life. I'm a Florida Gator. You're a Florida Gator. I am a Florida Gator. I got Gator. my facts wrong. Okay, I saw a video of you cooking for the Gators, and I thought, now why would a U.S. Like, bull do something he, like that? No, no, no. So you're a Florida Gator. Accept my humble apology. Um, <laughs> but what kind of foods were you eating when I was in college? It was mm-hmm. it was like cereal, twenty four seven. So oh, what was no, your no, no. what was your go to? And knowing with all the culinary knowledge that you have today, if you were to redo college, what kind of foods would you be eating, kind of on the cheap today? Uh, on the cheap. I, I did eat cheap. That's the reality because that's what we're forced to do. But I did eat good in college because I was always exploring. I was already cooking and experimenting prior to college. So I kind of brought that like experience and knowledge that I wanted to do this. I want to read cookbooks. But I also like met a lot of a lot of folks from the islands, Jamaica, Haiti, um, Puerto Ricans, etc., who were going to the University of Florida, who um, brought to me like their food experiences, which I didn't experience a lot of that in St. Petersburg because we didn't necessarily have a lot of islanders in St. Pete. You know, that's Palm Beach and Miami and you know Fort Lauderdale, et cetera. So all of that culture was brought up to me. And so I definitely explored um, Caribbean cuisine, uh, West Indies cuisine, um, just learning more about it. Not necessarily cooking about cooking it all the time, but just definitely experiencing it. On the cheap, like, you know, I did what everyone else did, you know, the ramen noodles with hot dogs and, and you know, the catch up on the leftover pizza kind of thing. You know, I did that every now and then too. So, <laughs> well, I don't know about the catch up on the pizza. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but you're those, the... those, late, those late, late nights, you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. We've all had those. So now that you've been in Seattle for a while, you still maintain these connections to Florida. Why is that so important to you? Like, I know you're getting ready to um, be a presenter at the Tampa Bay Collard Green Festival with Tony Tipton Martin, who was a friend of the pod. Actually, interviewing her at the Collard Green Festival in 2020 was like the last thing I did in 2020 (laughs) in person. (laughs) So she holds a special place in my heart. But you've got your hands full. You've got these restaurants. You've got personal life. Why take the time to still be so involved in Florida? Well, I spent more than half of my life in St. Petersburg, Florida. That's, you know, that's home for me no matter what way we look at it. I am definitely, you know, a long way away, some, what, 2,500 miles away, maybe 3,000 miles away. But I'm always connected to my family. My mom and my father still lives in St. Petersburg. I got cousins and friends still in St. Petersburg. So I'm always going to be connected. You know, one day it might be nice to retire there. But as of right now, like my career is driven up here where I'm at, where my son is, where my family is. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy up here, but I will never forget the facts of where I come from and, you know, who helped me become who I am. I got teachers and mentors that been there for me. So it's always great to reconnect, to also share my voice, to also inspire young folks that look like me that come from the same neighborhood as me, um, that you can make it, that you can do something great, that you can turn something nothing into something, you know? So it's always great to be a voice for my community in St. Petersburg and the Tampa Bay area. 
will always be my community, no matter what way you look at it. So, do you know yet what you'll be doing as far as the Collard Green Festival? Are you going to no, be cooking I, I something? No, I don't know yet. I, um, you know, I was a participant, um, what, two, three years ago? So I can't remember now. Um, so I'm going to follow up on what I did, you know, years before and then um, do a little something different, make sure I don't do the same thing. So I don't know yet. Okay. <laughs> so maybe like pizza with ketchup on it then? <laughs> It might you might get some shredded collard greens on top of a flat bread with some tomatoes. <laughs> yeah. you, you never know. Put a big price tag on it. Yeah, now, have exactly. you noticed a big difference in the way that people eat out west versus what people want in Florida? I mean, the biggest difference is it's ingredients. Like we we are hugely ingredient driven. Um, you know, the both both coasts have you know the abundance of seafood, but we truly embrace the seafood here. You know, we got some of the most prized seafood like the sockeye salmons and the dungeness crabs here um you know the access to spot prawn shrimps so like there's abundance of seafood that gets traded here so like yeah a lot of our diet is seafood you know people are super healthy here in the sense like they're out hiking they're out swimming they're out doing these you know super activities so they're they're thinking about leafy vegetables and and root vegetables and things of that nature more than um you know, the foods that we ate in the South. I'm from the South and it was reality. Like we ate fried food, uh, we ate braised foods, you know, we ate those healthy Sunday suppers that was still magical in their own special way. Now, I don't know how often you get back to Florida, but where is like the first place you have to go eat when you come home? Oh man, Uh, you know, it's been a while since I've been back to Florida, to be honest. If I'm going back to, St. Pete in Tampa, I'm going to um, the Rooster in the Tail, which is a good friend of mine, um, Faro Alvarez. Uh, Mise en Place was an amazing restaurant that I worked in in Tampa. St. Pete is growing and it's totally different than what I experienced some, I don't know now how long it's been since I've technically, I've been, you know, I've, I come home every now and then, but to, to the experience a weekend or so, it's been a while. So like St. Pete is totally new to me. It's kind of crazy. So I, I, I would take suggestions anytime. <laughs> it's new to me too. I live in Hillsborough County and every time I okay. cross the bridge into St. Pete, there's something new. There's a new mural, right. there's a new restaurant. There's just, you know, another reason why you want to stay in St. Pete and never leave. <laughs> now here's a question because you did leave. Do you think you could have had your success if you had stayed? That might be tough to answer. It, it is a tough answer, um, tough question to answer. I think it would have been slightly different. I think it would have been an uphill battle. St. Pete at the time was still growing and up and coming and still trying to have that emergence. I don't think personally it was ready for me, which is one of the main reasons why I did move to the West and, and continue traveling um, to see where my culinary experiences are really going to be embraced I have to compare other restaurants that are in the area and and the price tags that they're asking for foods and things of that nature. And, you know, the foods that I was trying to create with my restaurant, totally, I don't think resonated with that that community yet. Now, St. Pete, again, is changing. I know Tampa for sure is changing. And, you know, there's some amazing chefs and restaurants that are, are there and coming up. So could a restaurant like my restaurants that I have now up here in Seattle work? Heck yeah, they can. But back then, I knew that I still had a long way to go. St. Pete had a long way to go. So I I waited it out. So my mom tells me to come. (laughs) Of course she does. (laughs) (laughs) I like the way you phrased it, that the city wasn't ready for you. Because a lot of people, if if they're not having success immediately, they think I got to change something or, you know, there's a problem with me. But you say they weren't ready for me. Well, see, that's the thing. I'm I'm a very stubborn 
chef now because I, I think I've I've walked the path that I had to listen and do everyone else's food. And so when I actually opened my second restaurant here in Seattle, June Baby, it was like I put on horse blinders. There was nothing anyone could tell me. There was no critic. There was no customer. There was no my mom couldn't even come in the door and tell me like to change it up. Technically, I listen to my mom all the time. But, of course. you know, there I just I had a vision and I wasn't going to let anything detour me from my vision. And I think there would have been too much pressure back home to create that same type of entity, same type of um, establishment at that time. And so, you know, maybe one day, but as of right now, like, you know, Seattle treats me great. I'm in a beautiful community. People are really embracing what I do here. Um, And I love it. So we shall see. That's good. I like what you're saying about putting on blinders. So if you had the blinders off, what are some things that you might've gotten pushback on? And what do you think is misunderstood about what you're trying to do? Obviously it's working on some level. You've got the awards <laughs> and the accolades to prove it, but w- what do you think maybe was new for people? Well, I think by taking the blinders off and not having them on, um, you can easily lose track. You can easily, you know, steer to the left or steer to the right. You know, the reason why horse blinders are on so that they can stay focused and not be distracted. There's too many distractions from critics and their reviews to people expectations, to people desires, to people perceptions, you know, even price points. Like people are like, I do not want to pay that. Why, why? Like that was the first thing that I heard when I opened up June Baby Restaurant. It's like, I thought this was a meat and three, which means like I'm going to get a piece of meat and three vegetables and some bread and it should be fifteen ninety nine. I'm like, it doesn't work that way. Not with me because like I'm procuring and securing some of the best ingredients uh, around. I'm working with local farmers. I got some of the most sustainable meats and, and product that you can find. And that costs us. And no offense to anyone out there. I'm just saying it's like we're not just opening a can and putting it in a pot. You know, we're slicing and dicing and cutting. We're making our own spice mixes. And so that takes time. That takes energy. And that costs money. And so if I would have had my blinders off, I would have easily fell into that trap of like hearing people say that and I would not have a sustainable business and restaurant. You know, the the other aspect is that like if you're listening to everyone, you don't actually get to tell your own story. And so I get to tell my own story, my history, my family history through food. Um, I also get to research other histories and be able to explain and tell the whole story of how the whole transatlantic um, slave trade happened. And the influences that the West Africans had on so many cultures, which now kind of dictate what Southern food is for the most part and all the influences that make Southern food. So, yeah. Why do you think people thought your restaurant would be cheap? Because that's what um, the, the Southern connotation is. It's, it's faster food. It's unhealthy food. That's what people believe. And they think that it's cheap and inexpensive. It's just like any any culture out there that can be appropriated is automatically assumed that it should be cheap. You know, people think like Mexican cuisine. Oh my gosh, yeah, a taco nacho should be, you know, two ninety nine. you know. You think of Indian food. Oh my gosh, I'm not going to spend over $10. And that's not true. Like our ingredients and our spices and our experience is just, just as superior as any other cuisine. Like why, why is it okay to spend $32 in an Italian restaurant for pasta and seafood and you can't have a rice seafood dish, a jambalaya that costs the same amount, you know? Mm-hmm. Now, all of that said, I read that if your son wanted to be a chef, you would not <laughs> recommend culinary school. 
Why not? Correct. Um, well, he has a mentor right here, first it's of all. It's true. And I'm going to save him and myself at least $60,000 these days. The reality is that culinary school isn't for everyone. You know, if I could look back, I would have liked to find someone to mentor me where I could have saved that thirty-five, dollars $40,000 that I spent in culinary school. The reality is I went to culinary school. Culinary school probably also was my foundation, another level of foundation, and also an opportunity for me to get into the places that I probably would not have gotten into without culinary school. So there's the pros and cons. You know, if you can find a great mentor, if someone came in and worked for me, my son, for example, and spent three or four years working for me and with me and decided that he wanted to go work into, you know, the French Laundry or you know, um, any other three-star Michelin restaurant in this country, he's going to have that opportunity open for him because he did spend time working with someone that trained him and gave him a foundation. It's hard to find these mentors. And if it's going to be hard to find these mentors, then we need access to the education and foundation, which is most likely going to be culinary school. And, you know, hopefully we find a school, you find a school or my son find a school or anyone find the school that's really, really going to um, give them a foundation that they truly embrace too, because you have to take it serious as a student. And that's going to be a different door opening than like working with a mentor who's going to give you a recommendation, who's going to, you know, pass you on to the next chef that can help you go to the next level. So, How old is he? He's seven years old. He has a long way to go still. I got a nine-year-old and a five-year-old. First of all, he's seven years old, couldn't be cuter, star of your Instagram account. I'm sorry, but like him skiing and like you guys in the matching aprons. I'm like, forget about the, what food, you know what I mean? Just the cutest kid I've ever seen. But do you have any advice for parents trying to get our kids to eat new things? It's a struggle with me too in the culinary industry because I, I, I have some more extreme ingredients that I get to present to my son that he gets to turn his nose to or, or not. But the most important thing that I found was that I started at a young age for my child. Like I was starting to like, I made all of his baby food and not everyone has the talent or time to do that. But if you're buying food, you know, always think about like feeding your child as if you're feeding yourself and don't think about like uh, the chicken nuggets as the quick answer to soothe them. Think about like salad greens and, and forcing them to eat a little bit of the salad greens before they get to the chicken nuggets or you know, this is what a tomato looks like. This is a good tomato. You know, here's a cucumber. You know, here's what beets are. You know, just like little here and there. I don't know, like to simplify it, to summarize it, like I fed my son as I fed myself rather than like creating a meal or dinner based on their desire or his desire. So I always encourage just like, you know, treat them like they're an adult. Like even kids coming into my restaurant, um, a parent got upset and said like, why is there spinach and scrambled eggs are, um, why is there, you know, there, it was just a, a lot of things on the menu for kids that it was a designated kids menu that wasn't your typical kids menu. And the parent was upset. And I said, well, actually my son helped me design this menu for one. And he was probably five years old then. And then two, I want to make sure that our kids are getting a healthy meal. And so like, I guess also we can put the pressure on these restaurants and our chefs to make sure that we're thinking about our kids um, and not just frying up chicken nuggets as the meal option for, you know, our kids these days. So, I mean, there's a lot to it and I, maybe that like mixed everything together, but like we definitely just like explore, experiment, 
push these things on them as if you're pushing it onto yourself too. So also the parent has to be open-minded enough to be able to do that too. We sure do. And I'm going to go right now, take the chicken nuggets out of my freezer. So is there anything else you want to add? No, that's all I got. It's good to connect back with hometown. Hope everyone's doing good. Eat some good food, eat some collard greens and share that with the family. Chef Eduardo Jordan is a St. Petersburg native and James Beard Award winner. He'll be doing a virtual cooking demonstration at the Tampa Bay Collard Green Festival on Saturday, May 15th. I think he was just kidding about the pizza with the ketchup and the collard greens on top. But I guess we'll just have to watch and see, right? This year's festival will be a hybrid event of live and online experiences. And we've got a link to that event page at our website, thezestpodcast.com. I'm Delia Colon. I produce The Zest with help from Cheyenne Jaglau, Mark Hayes, and Blake Bass. Copyright 2021, WUSF Public Media. Mm-hmm.